are embarking on a crazy endeavor. You came here today hoping to hear a word from the Lord. Um, so that means we have to pray again before we open the word. So will you please bow your heads and join me? Dear Heavenly Father, we come here expectantly, longingly, with faith. Lord, we believe you are who you say you are. We believe that the Bible is your very inspired, breathed out word. So Father, we gather here hoping to commune with you, hoping to hear you speak to us as we flip open the pages of our Bible. So Father, will you please meet us here? Will you conform us to the image of your son? Will you get, uh, cause our hearts to soar with hope as we read your promises and act on them in faith? So Father, we pray all these things asking you to do what you have already said you will do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I hope your uh, holiday season is going well. Um, my family and I, we've already transitioned into the Christmas season. My, um, my parents came up recently from Savannah, Georgia, and we all got together, and we were watching a movie, a Christmas movie together, uh, called A Boy Named Christmas. Uh, maybe you've seen it. Uh, what's interesting about this movie is its central idea of hope. Uh, there's that something in each of these characters' lives that they think, if I can just have this, everything will be right. The king in the movie thinks, if I can just bring some hope to my gloomy kingdom, then all my, all my citizens will be happy, all the while he ignores their needs that he could meet. The uh, main character's father thinks, if I can just find this hope that the king's looking for, he'll give me a reward and I can make a better life for my son. The son, his name is Nicholas. He's the main character. His dad goes off on a quest to find this hope in the, the secret home of the elves, Elfhelm. So he goes searching for his father who's been lost and way overdue. And he comes to Elfhelm. And there he finds the leader of the elves, brokenhearted, hurt, wounded by how mean and cruel humans can be. So she's given up on hope. She's given up on joy and laughter, and she puts all of her hope in control, never to be hurt again. The movie ends with Nicholas showing all the characters that they have misplaced sources of hope, and what they really need is the joy of giving and the hope that comes when we share gifts with one another. Like the characters in the story, especially at Christmas, we can all allow good things to sneak their way onto the throne of our hearts, replacing Jesus as the king of our desires and hope. And then we find ourselves hopeless, sad, and even so at Christmas, long-held family traditions that once brought stability change and leave tears in the wake. The presents we longed for under the tree, they're really cool Christmas Day, but come January 31st, they're old news. The people and things that made Christmas the most wonderful time of the year come and go, 
we find ourselves hopeless, walking in gloom at Christmas. If we were to honestly look at our hearts, perhaps we would see that we had made a good thing an idol, and consequently, it left us broken. We need a better hope than what's under the tree. We need a better stability than what family traditions can afford. We need a better hope. And this is exactly what God calls us to in Isaiah 9. So church, in Isaiah 9, God is going to call us back to find our ultimate hope in him and a merciful deliverance he accomplishes in Jesus. God must be the one to whom we look for for our hope for tomorrow. A better tomorrow where Jesus reigns as king. So please open your Bibles with me and join me in Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. Again, that's Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. Now before we begin Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, let, let's get the lay of the land. What's happening so far in Isaiah up to this point? Well, to situate, situate ourselves in chapters 1 to 5, Isaiah is going to speak for God and indict Israel for breaking their covenant with God. Israel, all the way back in the book of Exodus, had entered into a, a covenant relationship with God where God said, I'm going to do these things for you, you will be my people, and this is what you need to do as my covenant people. Israel would forsake the Lord, break their relational obligations to God, and thus break the covenant. And God had told them, if you break this covenant, these curses are going to come upon you. And so now Isaiah announces the curse of exile. Exile from their home is coming. This brings us to Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has this vision of King Yahweh sitting on the throne. And Yahweh commissions him to go be his spokesman, to proclaim that exile and devastation is coming. But the people will not listen. They're not going to hear. They're not going to repent. This brings us to Isaiah 7 and 8, where Isaiah speaks to King Ahaz and says, you need to trust God. But Ahaz refuses and says, I'm going to look to the world empire Assyria to save me, not God. Isaiah says, fine, you want Assyria to save you? They will. You got all these enemies coming at you? Yeah, Assyria will come and he'll take them out for you. But he's not going to stop there. He's going to come right into your land too and take you out. This brings us to verse 9 of chapter 8. Here, Isaiah, despite the enemies coming, has an unshakable confidence in the Lord. While the rest of Judah runs scared and rejects God, Isaiah and the faithful believers in Yahweh will look to God for hope by preserving and trusting his word. But everyone who rejects God's word lives in fear. In chapter 8, verse 22, it says that they go about in gloomy anguish due to their fear of an Assyrian invasion, the price for forsaking the Lord. But this is not the end of the story. As we arrive at chapter 9, Isaiah now invites those who believe in the Lord to not allow the fear of coming exile rule their hearts. Rather, they should look to the Lord as hope as he reaffirms his previous promises with a hope that looks to the future. And here in Israel's story, we find a type of mirror for our own story. You see, like Israel, we are foreigners in a foreign land. The Apostle Peter, in chapter 2 of his um, 
his letter to the church, refers to the church as aliens and exiles. We recognize that this world as it stands is not our home. We await the recreation of this fallen world into a new heaven, a new earth. We're looking to a better country, as the author of Hebrews says. Following Jesus by obeying his word as he guides us to our true home. So as we'll see, though some of Isaiah 9's promises have been fulfilled, we still await expectantly for some of them to come to pass. Isaiah offers a hope that really is ours and for which in part we still wait. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So as we journey through this text, we have three main points that we're going to see. First, in verses 1 to 3, hope in the light of God's coming mercy. Hope in the light of God's coming mercy. Then in verses 4 to 5, hope in God's coming deliverance. Hope in God's coming deliverance. And then in verses 6 to 7, hope in God's coming Messiah. Jesus Christ. So let's look at that first section. Join me in verse 1 as we look at hope in the light of God's coming mercy. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Notice in verse 1 the terms gloom and anguish, right? We just saw those words in uh, chapter 8, verse 22. Isaiah is still talking about the same people. The same people who rejected the word of the Lord, refusing to trust in him, so they're walking in darkness. Well, now, Isaiah offers a word of hope. There will be no more gloom for the people in anguish. Isaiah now begins to explain how this will be. He invites his audience, he invites us to consider an example. He says, in earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. Isaiah is inviting his audience to consider the example of Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali, they were the two northernmost tribes of Israel. They, along with all Israel, had been rebellious against God. Further disobedience and breaking their covenant with God, God brought the covenant curse of exile, like we said. So just like his audience, Zebulun and Naphtali had been under the threat of this Assyrian invasion. Only being the northernmost tribe, they were the first in all Israel to experience the sword and cruelty of Assyria. Now, Isaiah's listeners are faced with the same gloomy outcome. But Isaiah offers a word of hope. Look with me at verse 1. But later on, he will make it glorious. Another way we could say this is he's going to treat them with honor. Yahweh provides hope for the future, past the announcement of doom and gloom. And it's not just hope for Israel. The end of verse 1 says, By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah gives us a few more location markers of where he's talking about. But the last one is the one that's striking. Galilee of the Gentiles. Back in Isaiah's day, a Gentile was a term for um, anyone who was not a Jew. So I presume that's pretty much all of us. Um, Gentiles in Isaiah's day, they didn't follow God. They didn't listen to his word. They didn't worship Yahweh. In fact, they were mostly enemies of God's people and of God himself. 
Yet God says this future hope is for them too. This is not just a hope for Israel. It's a hope for all the world. This promise looks back all the way to Genesis 12, where God tells Abraham that through his seed, through his descendant, he's going to inaugurate this, his master plan to redeem the whole world from their sin. So when Isaiah includes Gentiles in this promise, he's now talking about God's grand plan to save us all. So continuing to verse 2, Isaiah writes, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The people living in Zebulun and Naphtali, whether they were Jew or Greek, were living in darkness and gloom under Assyrian rule. So my NASB Bible says dark land, the people walking, living in a dark land. But the LSB translates the shadow of death. And that's a more literal translation. So bleak was the situation that these people are living under that it's like the looming shadow of death is hanging over them. But God would make this dark land glorious. How? A great light will break through the gloomy clouds of darkness and shine on the people. And did you notice that reversal Isaiah paints in verse 1? The first people to experience the gloomy results of Assyrian attack and exile will be the first people to experience the light of God's undeserved mercy. And notice Isaiah says nothing about earning this gift. He doesn't say Zebulun and Naphtali earned this. They didn't repent enough. They didn't go to church enough. They didn't do enough good deeds. No, They're walking in darkness. They've rejected the word of the Lord. God didn't owe them this. By definition, there's no way to earn God's mercy. God's mercy of salvation is a gift. It's purely from God's gracious character because he is Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So Isaiah invites us to hear the word of the Lord, believe the word of the Lord, and hope that past the gloom of exile, there's a light coming. And this light will bring immense joy. Look down with me at verse 3. Verse 3 opens with these crazy promises God makes to his people. They're so wild because they're the exact opposite of what their circumstances are soon to be. Assyria's coming. They're going to bring sorrow, famine, and even death. But our circumstances can't capture our gaze. Rather, we look to God and to the promised glorious future he's prepared for those who love him. So look at that first promise here with me. You shall multiply the nation. Now I wonder, does that ring in your ear? Does it have the aroma of any other promises in earlier scripture? Here we have an echo of the promise that God made to Abraham, that God would multiply his descendants into a great nation. And what a precious promise it is in light of the coming crisis. In Isaiah's day in Judah, only a small band 
a, a faithful remnant, other scripture calls it, uh, still believed and hoped in God. Everyone else abandoned God. Assyrian was coming to attack, dominate, enslave, kill, and exile. But that cannot stop God's ancient promise. He will make a great nation for Abraham's descendants. Exile is not the end of the story. This is not the end of God's people. A better hope awaits. Isaiah continues saying, You will increase their gladness. They will be glad before you as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. What another precious promise that defies the circumstances. Assyria's coming, bringing doom and gloom, but God, who is greater than Assyria, will bring gladness. But God, who has not turned his back on his people, they will once again be in his presence with gladness. Why? Because God will make them glad. And Isaiah gives all these descriptors of how intense their gladness is going to be. So look here, as with the gladness of harvest, where there once was the gloom of coming famine, God's going to bring such gladness, it's like it's harvest time. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, where there was once this gloom of this looming threat of a Syrian invasion, where they're going to plunder and take all your stuff, God is saying he's going to bring so much joy to his people, it's like they're the ones who's counting the, the plunder. Israel's present circumstances are outshone by the light of the glorious future God has prepared for them. We resonate with this small band of believers, don't we? We feel the pain of living as strangers in a fallen, broken world. Life can be difficult. Personally, perhaps, we find that the, the Christmas budget can only stretch so far. Change disrupts old traditions, that disrupts routine, and it brings a sense of chaos. The news seems only to herald gloom and the latest tragedy. And the world doesn't care for our good news of great joy. Our churches are small, believers are few, and the shadow of death may loom, even at Christmas. Wherever you find yourself today, dear saint, the coming hope the Lord is bringing is so much stronger and so much more intense. And it goes the other way too. Believer, whatever you're hoping in, trusting in, looking forward to, to bring you hope and joy, to, to make your world complete, especially this holiday season, the coming joy of the Lord is so much sweeter. It overwhelms the senses. It defies comprehension. What eyes have not seen, what ear has not heard. Where is our hope today, dear friends? Presents under the tree, the family we wish we could see, those are all good things. But they can't hold our ultimate hope. Our hope is in the Lord and in his promises and he promises to bring a marvelous light and joy. So what is this great light? How will God make his people glad? Well, in the movie I mentioned earlier, A Boy Named Christmas, I noted that when Nicholas gets to the home of the elves, right, he finds the elf leader, and she's heartbroken. 
She's been hurt by humans, and so she only sees their cruelty. And so she gives up on anything happy and joyous, and she shuts down all parties and all happiness in Elfhelm. Instead, she puts all of her hope in control, everything uptight, everything locked down, never to be hurt again. The elves live under this oppression, and they're never allowed to have fun. They're never allowed to make merry. So when Nicholas arrives, he delivers people from their bondage and restores joy to Elfhelm. Just as Nicholas would bring joy to the home of the elves by delivering them, Isaiah says God's going to bring a greater light and a greater joy to his people. He will end their oppression. He will bring them out of exile. And he'll do so by causing all wars to cease. So turn your gaze with me uh, to verses 4 and 5 as we look at hope and God's deliverance. Verse 4 says, For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. So notice that word for at the beginning of verse 4. Whenever we see this in our Bible, it means that the author is about to, to back up what he just said before. Isaiah just said that God will bring his people uh, great light and great joy. So the logical question is, how is he going to do that? How can this be? And Isaiah tells us how. God would deliver Israel from their captors. Assyria is not always going to be the one in charge. The next comment is from um, Alex Motier for for lots of my study and insights into the sermon. Um, I look to him. Uh, so I'm indebted to his work on Isaiah. He makes for some heavy Sunday afternoon reading, uh, but if you ever want to plumb the depths of Isaiah, he's an excellent guide. So the words here, um, yoke, burden, and oppressor, again, those are words that would be ringing in Isaiah's, um, his audience's ear. They would be thinking Egypt, the Exodus, deliverance out of Egypt. Isaiah was recalling the exodus and how God had led his people out from slavery. And God would now do so again. A second exodus. Exile was not the end of the story. And Isaiah makes a second allusion to the battle of Midian. So here Isaiah is alluding to Judges 6 and 7 where God freed his people from Midian by the judge Gideon. Maybe you remember that story, right? Gideon has all these troops, and God says, nope, there's too many. Send them home. And so then he has a smaller group, and God says, nope, it's still too many. Send more home, to where it's literally just Gideon and 300 men. And God says, there can only be this small band, because otherwise Israel would think that they saved themselves, and they wouldn't get that it was me. I delivered my people. So again, God was going to deliver his people. Well, how will our God affect this liberation? Well, we look to verse 5. And once again, we see that trusty little word, for. So we expect Isaiah to unpack and support a little bit more for us what he's talking about. Verse 5 says, For every boot of the booted warrior from the battle tumult, and every cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. God will liberate his people from exile by ending war and conflict among the nations. 
So if you're familiar with Isaiah, this sounds a lot like Isaiah 2, where God says, nation will not lift up sword against nation, and they will never again learn war. And Isaiah describes this reality with beautiful imagery. He first pictures the the boot of the warrior. I like the LSB's translation here better. It says, the boot that marches and shakes the earth. It captures the sense of the passage more. The boots of a marching army that thundered like a devastating hurricane into battle will all be done away with. Likewise, the garments stained with the blood of the wounded and the fallen in battle, picturing the violence of mankind, will all be done away with, all to be burned. God's deliverance for his people will be returning them from exile under their oppressors by ending all human conflict. Can you imagine a world without war? without any sort of conflict. It's hard to imagine. And even within the Christian life, conflict is inherent to our walk. The world is, for now, under the sway of the devil. We look back to Genesis 3 and we see that this conflict stretches from the beginning of the Bible, where the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are locked in battle. As we follow Jesus, we remember his words to us in John 15, 20. As they persecuted him, so also they will persecute us. This world is not our home. We're strangers and exiles here. And so we expect to face conflict, persecution, slander, and suffering. We expect the Christian life to be hard, to have to put in some sweat. But Isaiah paints a profound hope for us. We look to a better country. Like Joshua leading Israel back into the promised land, we await our Savior's second coming where he will do away with this wicked world and lead us into a new heavens and new earth where every nation will pay homage to our God. In the midst of opposition, mistreatment for our allegiance to King Jesus, we fix our eyes on this hope. This is the prize worth running for. The movie A Boy Named Christmas seems, sees Nicholas bring hope to a, a hopeless kingdom and restore joy to the people, ending long-held resentments and bringing light to a dark place. This is just one of the many takes on the origin of Santa Claus. Yet for all the excellencies of Santa, we need a greater man to bring lasting hope to the world. We need a great shepherd to lead us out of exile. We need a king capable of subduing the nations. We need a Messiah. So let's let's recap so far. Isaiah has pictured a coming mercy of God, like a ray of hope through the clouds that's going to bring great joy. What's that light? It's God mercifully delivering his people from exile under their oppressors. And he's going to do that by subduing the nations. But how is God going to bring all conflict to an end? Peace implies that all nations and peoples are in submission to the same authority. Someone has to bring the nations into submission. We need a leader 
to lead us from exile and bring peace to our world. So we now come to the climax of this passage, the pinnacle, the mountaintop, verses six to seven. We arrive at the person of Jesus Christ. And so now we look at hope in God's coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. So perhaps when we read verses one to two, your ears rung. The verse sounded familiar. You're, you heard it elsewhere. Yes, Matthew cites it in chapter four of his gospel. When Jesus begins his ministry, he begins in Galilee, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Matthew knows this is no coincidence. No, Jesus was fulfilling this very written word by Isaiah. Jesus is the light of God's mercy incarnate. He is our good shepherd here to lead us out from our gloomy exile into the new heavens and new earth. He is both savior and king. Isaiah now pictures a coming Messiah, the serpent crusher of Genesis 3, the seed of Abraham, the Davidic son, the ruler of nations, King Jesus. Turn with me to verse 6, please. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And to the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall accomplish this. Notice how verse 6 begins. Again, that trusty little word, for. Yet again, Isaiah is backing up what he said before. How will God accomplish the new exodus and peace over the world? Isaiah explains. Through a little baby. Wait, wait, Isaiah. A baby? Can you imagine his reader's shock? A baby? This is how God is going to affect our deliverance. That's how all wars will cease. That is how God will affect his master plan to save the world from our sin. Yes, a baby whom we know to be Jesus. God is well pleased to use the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Salvation will come through a baby born to us. And notice that, that language there, a child will be born to us. The light is shifting, not, not on, it, it's shifting on the mere fact of Jesus' birth, right? Just the fact that he's born means that all these other promises are secured. By the mere fact of his birth, the promises and results of Jesus' grown adult ministry are going to happen. The child is born, redemption is secured, the cross is coming but so is Resurrection Sunday. And the right hand of the Father awaits to receive the Son for all to be subjected to him. Amen. A child is born, and the life sh shifts to Jesus' earthly ministry. He's 100% man, but he's also the Son given, given by God, divinely sent. Isaiah continues, the government will rest on his shoulders, by government, Isaiah means here the, the office and the prerogatives to reign and rule over all. In other words, 
It is only Jesus who will reign. Not Assyria, not Russia, not our political candidate, Jesus alone. Now Isaiah's logic becomes more clear to us, doesn't it? The light of God's mercy from verses 1 to 2 is his release of his people from exile and his oppressors. How? King Jesus will reign over all. The staff of the oppressor on the shoulders of God's people from verse 4 will be broken. And instead, the government will be placed on the shoulders of a good and righteous king. Assyria won't afflict Israel. Why? Every nation will bow to one king, Jesus. Oh, but this good news is only beginning. Isaiah continues to describe this good king. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. So Wonderful Counselor, you could also translate that as Marvelous or Extraordinary Counselor or one who gives marvelous or extraordinary counsel. Isaiah speaks of the wonderful wisdom, the penetrating perception of the Messiah Jesus. This is the king with the insight, the shrewdness, and the acute wisdom needed to rule over the nations forever with righteousness and justice. Mighty God. Now, th this, is, this is incredible. Isaiah calls Yahweh mighty God in Isaiah 10.21, and other authors of Scripture refer to Yahweh as mighty God. So you could look at Deuteronomy 10.17, Nehemiah 9.32. So this Messiah, who we just said is 100% man, is now called the same name as Yahweh. What does that mean? Our Messiah Jesus is not just 100% man, but he is 100% God. Jesus is Yahweh. As Jesus sits on the throne as your king, he is none other than God the Son incarnate in the flesh. Everlasting Father. Now, to be everlasting, to endure forever, that's something that only belongs to God. So this Messiah must be God. This also means he will reign in perpetuity. He will reign forever, grant to his people forever the stability and peace of his rule. But more than just the duration of his reign, this name speaks to his character. He will relate to his people as a father. This is no cold, distant tyrant. This is a king who loves his people like they were his own children. This is a king who protects you, who has your best interest at heart, and who loves you. Prince of peace. Prince here is the word shalom. Shalom has the idea of wholeness, completeness, everything being as it should. This is a man who is himself without sin, at peace with God, and will make peace among men by doing away with their sin. He will restore our world to peace, to everything being rightly ordered and as it should be. This is the man, this is Jesus, coming to reign over us, 
to Isaiah's listeners under the rule of a wicked king, Ahaz, this would fill their sails with hope for a better future. A better king is coming. And we can relate to this, can't we? No more corrupt politicians. No more choosing between bad and worse at the box office. There will only be the good Lord Jesus who brought us from our sin, from a fallen world, into a new heaven and new earth where he reigns. But Isaiah is still not done. There's still more to say. Look at me with our last verse, verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Isaiah means that there will be nothing over which King Jesus does not extend his perfect and good rule over. No country will defy him. No power will repel him. The devil will feel the heel of his boot, and even death itself will have to yield to Jesus. There's no end to his peace, meaning there's nothing that Jesus will not make right. There's no injustice that goes unanswered. There's no tear that goes overlooked. There's no wrong that won't be righted. Everything will be set right as God's glorious master plan for the salvation of the world comes to a head, a focal point, and a fruition in the person of Jesus. All things will work together for good. There's coming a day, saint, where this hope will become a reality. But where will this rule and reign of Jesus emanate from? What throne does he sit on? On the throne of David and over his kingdom. Isaiah is saying the Messiah who we know to be Jesus is the Davidic king on whom all the promises, hopes, and expectations of the entire Old Testament hang and in which the New Testament points and says, it's here. If we had time, we could look at 2 Samuel 7 and the covenant God makes with David. We would see that 2 Samuel 7 is like an hourglass where all the previous promises of the Old Testament come to a head and then from which all the the remaining promises are going to funnel out from. When Isaiah says the coming Messiah will rule on the throne of David, Isaiah, in the next few lines, says that the Messiah is going to establish David's kingdom, do so forever. All this language is from 2 Samuel 7. This coming Messiah is the son of David. And this is why it's so significant when the gospel writers call Jesus son of David. All these hopes and expectations are charged into those three little words. In him, all the promises of God find their fulfillment. The verse goes on to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Not only will he rule over David's house, he's going to establish it with sure foundations in justice and righteousness and uphold it so that it remains forever. Now that word pair there, justice and righteousness, that's, that's a super significant pairing in the Old Testament. Whenever it comes up, you might want to highlight it, underline it, circle it, whatever you like to do in your Bible. King Jesus is going to reign in such a way that it exemplifies God's holiness in his dealings and reflects his righteous principles. 
from then on and forevermore. Friends, is Jesus not a good king? Has Isaiah not set your hearts ablaze with hope and desire for this good king to come? Well, guess what? When he comes, his reign will never end. This good thing doesn't end. King Jesus will reign forevermore. These words were all partially fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. He was born as a baby. He preached the word of the Lord and proclaimed good news that God's rule and reign had come. He fulfilled all righteousness. He died on a cross as our substitute, freeing us from the curse of our sin and making a way for us to again dwell with God and granting us the hope that one day he would lead us out of exile in this fallen world to a new heavens and new earth. He would later ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all things to this very day. Well, you might say, I don't see Jesus ruling and reigning now. There's still war and strife, and for all the world's Christmas efforts, there's still not peace among men. We still find conflict with ourselves, between others, with the world. And yet, as the author of Hebrews says, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. While Christ is in control of all things, he awaits the Father's perfect timing to bring to fulfillment his rule and reign. In a sense, we're still waiting on these promises. We're still waiting for the Lord Jesus to come again. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus and prepare for his coming. But how do we know that this really is going to come about? How do we know that this is going to happen? We'll look at this last line in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The Lord is himself zealous for this to happen. He wills it to come to pass. Therefore, it will come to pass, and nothing can thwart it. A sure hope in deeds. So, saint, where is our hope this Christmas? The lights? The presents under the tree? The traditions? What animates you this Christmas? What gets you out of bed? Perhaps a good desire has become an ultimate desire. Have we allowed a good thing to become God and replace Jesus as the thing we treasure most? How might we then realign our heart and put our hope in the Lord and his Christ? Well, there's a difference between a focus and a reminder. Christmas and all it entails is a reminder of our focus. Christ and the hope his birth gives us. Hope of receiving God's mercy, hope of freedom from exile, hope in the Messiah who will accomplish these things. So as you go about your Christmas holiday, ask yourself, how do these things remind me to focus and cherish Jesus more? The lights? They remind me of a hope of God's mercy in Jesus shining through the gloom of my sin. The cookies? They remind me of how sweet my Lord is and to cherish and savor him. The presents under the tree? They remind me of a son who was given for me for my sin. The people beside me, 
they remind me of the multitude of people God has redeemed for himself. And that one day I will sit beside my brothers and sisters worshiping this good king. Perhaps you're here today and you realize you've never looked to Jesus as your hope. You've never acknowledged that you've indeed sinned against a holy, merciful God who must punish sin. But this child was given for you. Jesus gladly died on the cross, taking the punishment for your sin so that all who would repent of their sinful ways, believing Jesus to truly be all he says he is, God's beloved son, the savior of the world, following Jesus in obedience. That's you today. Today can be the day of salvation. This great hope can be yours. Please talk to me or Pastor Adam after the service. Grab us. We'd love to talk with you. Odds are the person beside you would as well. Beloved, I pray this Christmas reminds you and fills you with hope and anticipation for King Jesus and causes you to fix your eyes on your good King. Let's pray together. Our Father, everything written in the scriptures is for us, for our encouragement. So by perseverance, we might have hope. Father, we pray that in the gloom that comes in our life, when the lights go down and Christmas is over and January comes and we face a new year, we would remind, you would remind us of texts like these, that they would recenter our hope on Jesus and our love and affection on your son. In your son's holy and precious name we pray, amen.